Greetings, my friends. Welcome to Minute with Mark. Uh, this is live from the mountain. I should call these like the mountain episodes or something. But anyway, so in today's episode, right now, um, about 10 of my buddies, um, all from the Limitless Culture, are skiing. It's the morning. And I sent them up to the hill and I work for a few hours before I ski and then I ski three or four hours. But I'm here for two weeks, so I don't need to ski eight hours a day because I just don't. So anyway, today's episode is going to be interesting. I just had a business, like a prep meeting for an upcoming meeting. So a meeting before the meeting with a billionaire who wants to talk gamification. He's seen what we've done with the limitless culture. He's really intrigued by it. And I think gamification is going to be, uh, it's so, uh, there's an undercurrent right now that some of the wealthier people that I've ever encountered are seeing that this will be the future of knowledge, it will be the future of training mechanisms, it will be the future of culture, schools, and that reality gamification, we're calling it transformational or transformative gamification. Um, it's going to pop here in the next decade or so. So anyway, we're meeting, I'm meeting with a billionaire in the next probably 30 days, and I'm going to share um, how we prepped for that meeting. And then also a couple little entrepreneurial or adventurepreneur realities. A few years ago, I, I I don't know if I coined the phrase. I think I did, but adventurepreneur, which is that you're an entrepreneur um, and your entrepreneurship funds your adventure lifestyle. And whether that adventure is scrapbooking for you or horseback riding or painting or poem writing, there's a way you have to fund your adventure, your passion projects, your like fascinations to fortunes. And so talk a little bit about the realities of location-free business. I have a completely digital business. Um, there's no need for any location um, specifics almost at any time. Almost everything's done digitally and invisibly through um, through the web and through mobile and stuff. So just a little couple of realities on that because when you have that, it takes a pretty pretty disciplined sense of productivity or you can get washed away completely in the fact that you can be anywhere and play as much as you want. Like right now, I have 14 days next to one of my favorite hills in the nation, which is Wolf Creek. I heard about it in Forbes magazine. It's just a, it's just a gem of a ski, a ski hill. And with our travel membership, you know, it's about twenty-five to $3,000 on VRBO. I pay $500 a week. It's three-bedroom, about 2,300 square feet or so. So I'm here for two weeks. It's like I own a ski chalet, um, but I don't have to deal with any of the realities of ownership. I just get to use. So um, I'm going to go into that for just a minute, and then let's just get into it. So prep for the billionaire meeting. So here's the short story. My partner is going to meet with the billionaire to position me um, before the meeting. And so I was saying, as you're positioning me, and he knows how to position me and, and all this stuff. And remember, when you're, your reputation does half your work, okay? So one of the goals as an entrepreneur is to get to a place where your reputation can do literally half your work before you show up, before anything. And so when in a referral basis, if you're doing referral business or anything like that, um, to to intend and create a kind of a kind of introduction that people will say, okay, now this this guy, this girl you're going to meet, and not not fake, just like they are a thought leader here, or they're exceptional here, or they have 
really a genuine, it's just a rare breath of fresh air on how they approach this or that or the other thing. So anyway, we're talking about how my partner is going to position me to the billionaire who already knows me and I've already met him a little bit, but this is just in terms of not social and, you know, friend, friend, social environment. This is a business, you know, a brass tacks, real world, creating systems and stuff for the billionaire. So what I, what I shared with my partner is I said, I really want you to position me as a slow trigger and say that when we meet, I'm not going to just fire off answers and fire off techniques and fire off strategies and come in with my agenda. This is how you do reality gamification. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm the pro. Even though some of that is, some of that's true, I really want to be positioned as someone that's going to diagnose uh, really, because there's two things I want to diagnose on this meeting. Number one, what does the billionaire personally want to feel from this initiative? Now, that may sound a little light, a little too emotional, a little, a little uh, flaky or whatever, but there's a reason this billionaire wants to move into gamification for himself. He wants to feel something new that he's not feeling. And whether that's he walks into a place and he's respected as a futurist, who gets it, who was one of the first people to the table for corporations with this. I want to know deeply. And sometimes we don't even know what we really want to feel. We just have an idea, but we don't dig deep enough. So the first thing I said is, you know, introduce me and position me as somebody who's a slow trigger because I'm really going to want to know what he really wants to feel out of this thing. What is it personally? Never mind the outcome. Never mind what the business that we create of it, never mind the deliverable that the, that the people, that the consumers and the clients of him experience. That's a separate deliverable. The first deliverable is what does he want to personally feel? Now from that, that dictates it. So if he wants to feel, you know, younger and hipper and fresher and more um, in line with what's coming, I want to know that because that's going to that's going to dictate some things. So anyway, just in terms of positioning, the the first thing you want to, something that you can take from this as a consultant or whatever kind of work you do, if you're doing advisory work, is not to necessarily come in like, hey, I've got the big D, I know what's going on, um, you know, you're lucky to be talking to me kind of thing. You really want to come in and say, what, what do you really want? Like, what do you want to feel? What do you want to have? What do you want to know? And and see if we can deliver that. So that's the first outcome is I want to know what he wants to feel because I'm, that's a target because I don't want to pull the trigger till I know the target exactly. Like a hunter doesn't just go out in the mountains and just take his rifle and just start popping shots everywhere, hoping an elk shows up. He actually stalks the elk. He tracks the elk. He learns about the elk. And then it's a single shot. It's a one shot. And so I want to be positioned as a one-shot trigger. Like I get so clear that I can see between the eyes before I hit. Okay, so that so I want to know that with what the billionaire wants. Number two, I want to know what his deliverable, what he wants that deliverable to be for his clients to experience. I want to know what they, what he wants them to feel and what they, what they, the outcome. So we really start at this, at this feeling basis, but there's two outcomes. Cause if I just show up in that, maybe there's some value here. Maybe I'm just meandering. I don't know. But the idea is I, 
I don't want to come into this as like, hey, I know what I'm, I know what I'm doing. I really want to be known as a slow trigger, deep diagnostic, figure it out, and then fire. And when we pull that trigger, it we don't miss. That's a sharp shooting strategy, but it's also a patient strategy. Pays way better. It requires way less work, even though it seems like we're not getting to work fast enough, right? Because I might. I might spend three to five hours just figuring out the real bullseye for him personally and the real bullseye of the deliverable he wants for his clients before I suggest a single strategy, okay? So it's a patient and it seems slow, but then the vision I have, and I've done this many times, is it's a one trigger and it works and we strike it immediately. So whether there's any value in that, who knows? Okay, number two, the adventurepreneur reality. So when I got started in this stuff, you know, eight years ago or whatever, nobody was doing it. And I had this thought that, you know, in the coming years, in the next five to 10 years, there would be every single person. This is what I used to say at the very start when I got on this stuff. I said, the, and this is like 2006, I would say in the next decade or so, every single person will know a person personally, whether it's their uncle, their aunt, their cousin, their, their sister, their, their friend, their frat brother, whatever, every single person will know a person who only makes money with a laptop and a phone, no office and no boss. And I said, right now, I'm, you know, back in those days, I said, I'm the only one, you know, you know, you clicked on an ad and here I am. I might be the only thing, you know, and I'm not even real. Like I'm just this thing online. I said, but in the next decade, Every single person will personally know someone that they grew up with, that whatever. And as that happens, it'll continue to happen, which is why uh, the book Future Smart says by the year, I think it's 2030, 70% of the workforce will be laptop, phone, digital, no office, or optional office if they desire an office, but independent contractors digitally dominating. So... That's, you know, we're 15 years from that and the trend from 2006 to 2016, I think right now as a listener, just ask yourself, do I know anybody, a classmate, a friend, a brother, a sister, somebody in the real world that doesn't have a job that is their own private at home, digitally based income person. And just about everybody in the developed world in America, at least just about everybody knows somebody that's like, yeah, I don't know. They make like 50 grand a month. What do they do? I don't know. It's like they sell face lotion online or I don't know. They develop leads for annuities or I don't know. They do. They have a Shopify store. Or, I don't know. They sell on Amazon. I don't know. They have eBay. It's like a living garage sale at their, in their, it's just weird. That's only going to continue to escalate. So food for that. So as that reality becomes more and more real, this idea of kind of, you know, you've got a location-free business, you've got total, not total time freedom, because that's just not where it's at yet for me anyway, but, but you have a lot more flexibility with scheduling, flexibility with time. You don't have to just, you know, open your eyes to a screaming alarm clock and drive a 50-minute commute to a place you don't want to be to work with people that you just have to be with and be in some weird corporate bizarro ladder that you don't like and you know this whole that whole system is crumbling 
Like it's crumbling actively as we speak. It's just falling apart and it's being replaced by independent tribes, independent contractors, and people that literally right now, kids like my kid, uh, my kids can be asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I didn't know when I was growing up in the 90s and 80s that I could answer, I want to be myself as an income stream. I want to, I love travel, so I'm going to make a bunch of money and travel. I love learning, so I'm going to create learning hacks and learning and reading programs and productivity programs. And I love optimizing life, so I'm going to create optimizing life systems. And, you know, I love, uh, I really, really enjoy money, so I'm going to teach financial prosperity and I'm going to learn how to do it myself and teach other. Like, that wasn't really on the menu as kids grew up in the 80s and 90s, when right now, kids literally with Instagram and Facebook, they can see that they can actually choose, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be myself. And I love cooking, and I'm thinking I'm going to do a cooking channel and a membership site, or I love guns, and I'm going to feature guns, and I'm going to, you know, like the these this next gen is actually feeling that. So, okay, blah, blah, blah. So adventurepreneur reality. It's like right now is a good case in point. I have a, a bunch of buddies into you know, here, these are the ring bearers of our limitless culture. So these are the, these are the kind of the cream of the crop. They've gone through probably 200 hours of gamified reality and challenges and real life, uh, kind of like imagine personal development, human optimization challenges, um, everything from physical to financial to, you know, just a very ordered, optimized uh, situation through the game. And then they've also contributed to the community and brought, brought value. They've been vetted through other friends, blah, blah, blah. So they're a great group. <clears throat> now the catch is if I were to just play with them this week, like right now they're on the, on the mountain, just enjoying, enjoying the slopes. I have shit to do. Like it's, it's important. It's optional, but it's like I told them, if I took the option to not do it, my business loses momentum. And I personally, and this is something for you as you're developing your own business, get really, really keen on where is your anxiety? Where is your guilt? If you just ask yourself, and again, it's something we kind of run from because it's not like cheery. It's not bright. It's not an exciting question. But if you ask yourself, where's my anxiety? When do I feel anxiety? What triggers my anxiety? A lot of us just grow up with anxiety because our parents were anxious or our grandma was anxious or I don't know, maybe some of us just have higher revving RPMs or something from the start. But it's really good to say, where is my anxiety? What triggers it? Where is my guilt and what triggers my guilt? Where's my nervousness and what triggers my nervousness? And when you go into that nightmare, okay, what is my nightmare? Now, some would say, well, if you dwell on that, it's going to manifest and all this BS. I, I would beg to differ, but whatever, take whatever works for you. And as long as you're growing and all the preconditions of what you consider to be successful are manifesting, then follow whatever works for you. But um, by saying for me personally, what triggers my anxiety, I actually, similar to like a constipation feeling, if I don't release ideas that I'm given, that I receive into my mind, I actually feel stilted, creativity, like I feel I feel blocked if I have a great idea and it doesn't get executed or doesn't get thrown out into the world or doesn't get tested in the real market where people can criticize it or love it or hate it or adore it or whatever. If I just sit on that idea and most of the time I sit on that idea either in most people would sit on it 
in fear because great ideas are, you know, when we personally have an idea and it's a flash of an idea and we think, wow, that could be amazing. It's a weird protecting protection mechanism to hold on to that idea because it's safe with us. We can build a castle in the air, a kingdom of sorts in our heart on this precious little idea. But when we release an idea to the public and people can pay for it or not pay for it, buyers can criticize it, condemn it, throw it in the garbage, refund their money, nah, not like it, then you're dealing in a reality. <laughs> okay. So for me, what what happens is I know what triggers my anxiety and my guilt is when I have ideas that I'm not throwing out to see if they have legs. See, I don't, I'm not overly obsessed on whether the ideas are loved or hated or adored or not. I kind of throw them out and see if they have traction, see if they get a gathering, see if people talk about them, see if I get texts from friends that go, hey, I listened to that. That was huge. That helped me. I used it here. And if I'm not doing that, ideas start stockpiling and it creates a constipation. And just like, you know, real bodily constipation, um, you become toxic and your creativity very, I believe that being made in the image of God, you know, our primary calling is for creativity and manifesting uh, dominion and abundance. And uh, it's just where I'm at. It's what I kind of landed on for just human beings. And so... What happens is when we aren't releasing these ideas, they stockpile, we become toxic, and then we don't receive any more ideas. We don't even think of them because why would we stockpile them in a queue we're never going to release anyway? So anyway, what happens, I think, is this, this blockage begins, and then pretty soon we become so toxic to creativity, we don't even want to hear about a new idea because we know we're not going to move on it anyway because it causes guilt because, okay, you get the kind of domino effect here a little bit. So where does, what triggers the anxiety? And for me, there's a long story to get back to that. If I skied today, this morning, I would actually not enjoy it. And it's impossible because skiing is one of my favorite things. It's actually um, this morning before I started this podcast, when everyone fled to the hills, I put on some Gregorian chanting and I opened up to, I think it was Psalm 66. And I have a djembe from Africa that my wife brought back from Africa and I've got the the Gregarian chanting just bumping. And it talks about the Lord and his creation and that he waters the earth and the hills and the foothills sing for joy. When I get up on the hills, it's very magical to me. It's spiritual. The Ten Commandments were at the top of the mountain. You know, they were received at the top of a mountain. Jesus gave his sermon on the mount at the top of a mountain. There is prohibit there's prohibitions in the Old Testament and in the Torah on setting up altars and worshiping on the mountains to false gods. There's something very magical, very spiritual, very elevated about being up on the mountains. And it's and it's it calls me up there. Like it calls me to hike up there. I'm like a bird. It's just a bird flies south, I head to the mountains. Like it's just in me. I've acknowledged it. I recognize it. But even with that truth, if I went there today before I purged out some of my thoughts and before I dealt with some of the shit I have to deal with to run a multi-million dollar business, I would be on those hills and I'd have tinging guilt and anxiety that I, I didn't do some of my calling today. Now, I don't feel that every day. I think if I had a job and I got two weeks of vacation... 
I think I'd be on that vacation. I wouldn't care because those are my two weeks. But when you're location free, when you're mobile, when you're flexible, when you're, when your schedule is completely elastic, you can fall trap. And I've fallen traps. So I'm coming to you from the field on this one. Fallen trap and it's just like, Friends want to go out to eat? Yep. Friends want to go hiking? Yep. Friends want to go mountain biking? Yep. Friends want to go surfing? Yep. Friends want to go to Hawaii? Yep. And you just say yes to everything and the next thing you know, you don't do any work. The bank account gets down to E and you're sitting there and now you're scrambling. So the reality of being an entrepreneur, being an adventurepreneur, there's a difference. Entrepreneurs, if I was to make a distinction, and I'm just making this shit up as I'm talking right now, but the difference between an adventurepreneur to me and an entrepreneur, I should really write a book on this, but I probably won't, is an adventurepreneur is very keen on what is the adventure of her heart. What is the adventure of his heart? What What is that? They love riding horses in the mountains. Therefore, they're going to have an adventurepreneur. They're going to have a revenue source and a lifestyle design that allows them to buy that horse, ride that horse, train that horse, maybe even make an income from horses if they want to, but that's not, that's not mandatory. But they're very keen that I love horses, I love painting, and I love taking family trips to the ocean. And my preneur, my entrepreneur endeavors source and fund the freedom and the fun money to be able to go do those things. Whereas sometimes I think an entrepreneur, you know, the, the kind of the common mantras that are out there is like work your face off. Um, you know, every day needs to be productive. God, it's just, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's just the most boring messaging I've ever heard. It's like work, 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 work. And then it's just, <laughs> I don't know. I've never, I just never took the bait on that. But anyway, because I've, I have a lot of friends that are pretty wealthy and sometimes I'll talk to them and I'll be like, so what do you, what, what, not just do, what do you love to do, but what have you been doing that you love to do? And they'll, they'll really just say, and they love their work. So there is a caveat on that and that people do love their work, but, um, so they can obsess and live in it and that's, that's okay, I guess. But, but it's really like, They've just blunted and cut off and scissored out every freaking passion, every childhood joy that brings them bliss. They have no free time to just wander into a museum for two hours and just screw around and look around. And if that's what they want to do, climb a mountain, blah, blah, blah. So the adventurepreneur is keen on their passions. But here's my point. When you get location free, when you get mobility rich, when you dial this stuff in, and the cash register starts starts going. Like yesterday, I think we our business has revved about twelve thousand bucks. I I think. Now I didn't do anything, okay? But I realized that that's coming because of work I do in moments like this, okay? I know that that that's not an endless gravy train. That there's a contribution that I get to make to the empire, and that that's the power. So. Food, I don't know if there's any freaking value in this at all. I'm really just rambling because I, I have about 90 minutes of a certification course to create before I head up to the mountain because it's due on Thursday. Here's another little productivity hack. Procrastination. So I have um, a course that's a business-to-business -business course training some of our affiliates to approach local businesses for XYZ. 
So we pre-sold around six or seven thousand dollars of this this product, and last week I released phase one. Now this week I released phase two on Thursday. I'm recording this. It's on a Tuesday. I think it's a Tuesday. Um, yeah, it's a Tuesday. So I record this on a Tuesday. It's due in two days. Now here's the kicker. As an information marketer, I often sell a product before it's created. Like almost every time I do it like that. And why I do that is I say it'll release module one, phase one, game one, level one, whatever will release on Friday. Now with money in the bank and people itching at the gates ready to dive in, as long as I release on Monday or on Friday, even if I'm up Thursday night at 4 a.m. grinding it out to make sure it's ready Friday, I'm not procrastinating as long as it's done by Friday. Most of us don't throw our idea out there. And so there's no pressure. There's no real world pressure to get anything done because the ideas aren't out. So maybe one of the takeaways out here are just from an ideation standpoint. If you have ideas, throw them out there because you may find very quickly upon the release into the world and upon the work of actually a little more reality from the intangible thought into the manifested, you know, the work that your idea, you're totally and completely uninterested in that idea. Case in point is I've done some abstract art, posted a couple pictures online here or there, and I've had some people reach out and say, I want to, I want to Hoverson original. And one of another friend said, Hey, what did you pay for that painting? They didn't know I painted it. They thought it was like a $5,000 looking canvas. And I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll start like an, an art line, like an abstract painting line. So I've painted like four or five canvases now, and the reviews have been good, like from friends, family, you know, business people that come by, you usually like nod and go, wow, I actually put that in my office. I think it looks great. It's so much freaking work to paint those things. <laughs> like it, it's, it's therapeutic, but it's like I'm jumping into a jungle of learning how to work with the mixtures of the colors and the textures of the canvas and just like the visual feng shui of the eye that it provokes what I want it to provoke and causes what I want it to cause. It's so much work that I killed the idea of making it commercial within about two paintings, two or three paintings. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to paint these for my friends, for my kids, for myself, for my own house. Maybe we'll put them in, you know, maybe we'll revisit putting them in prints or selling like replicas or something. But I'm like, that is a business to me as a high-end artist. Um, nah, I'm over it. But here's my point. I had the idea. I worked the idea. I threw the idea out. It got a little bit of traction. And I had reality around it. And then I was like, oh, God, no, 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 thank you. Now, I might revisit that thing, but I'll revisit it with knowledge. So to part this thing, get this ramble fest over, if you have some ideas, like you might have an idea to start a podcast, let's say, just throw up a couple episodes and send them to 15, 20 friends. Don't make this, don't manufacture this castle in the air. A podcast is just a ton of work. It's not for barely anybody to do. Um, maybe you have a great book. Write the first chapter. Write a one-pager. Have your have a friend or family or a stranger read it, and when they read it and they say, "Oh, that's really great," because they're just nice people, they're going to pat you on the back. Say, "Would you give that to a friend and tell tell me what your friend that doesn't know who I am thinks?" Then you'll know if it's got any freaking potential. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Because our friends are going to protect us, give us high fives, and pet us, and give us suckers and things like that for trying. And that's that's what friends do, and that's why we need them. But 
the more you can purge out an idea, let it bang up against reality, you might find that someone says, oh my gosh, that paper might move and the next thing you know, it's in the hands of an executive Hollywood entrepreneur and they say, I got to get this guy on the line. got to get this girl on the line. We've got to develop this. This could be a movie. But you never know if it stays congested and, and constipated in your heart. All right, Mark Overson, love you guys. Mountain episode. Au revoir.